Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Anam Teva, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Pakistani-American champion Anam Teva about family dynamics, the worldwide bridge community and playing up. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? Well, I'm fine. How are you, partner Catherine? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I was playing at the club last night and I noticed that I did something after every auction that I had that other people didn't seem to be doing, which is after I've written up the contract on my score sheet, which is in a little plastic thing with my convention card, I then sit on my convention card because as far as I'm concerned, there's not enough room on the table despite other people covering their areas with paper. And um, yeah, I I thought, oh, is that one of my little bridge quirks? It's very eccentric, Catherine. 
I must say, I have been known to sit on my convention card. So I guess it's an eccentricity that maybe we share. (laughs) (laughs) I am delighted and intrigued that you do the same thing because generally I don't think people do, but it seems the logical spot to put it. Well, one of the few options one has. Yeah, unless they're the lovely table. Right. Which unfortunately doesn't happen all the time. No, and I know you've got that, what's that contraption that that you had for a while? (laughs) Oh, yes. It's this wooden thing that attaches to the table and you can put a drink in a little hole and then you can clip your... You can clip your score sheet onto it and it's lovely, but I just don't lug it around so much. No, (laughs) no. But that's also quirky. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is quirky. And it got me thinking about other people's quirks. I had noticed this thing. um, I was kibitzing Zia a few months ago at a tournament. Mm. And I noticed that even though it was not rubber bridge, he cuts his cards after he counts them. So he counts his cards and then cuts them every single time, which I thought was interesting little quirk, but I suspect goes back to his rubber, you know, he's very much got his start in rubber bridge and I just wondered if he'd picked up that little habit from that. Does he put the cards on the table and then take half of them and then put the other half on top? Yeah, he was. Okay. Interesting. I like it. Yeah, so I thought I'd share that with you, my quirk, which it seems we we share, the sitting on the convention card, but I did wonder about other people's (laughs) bridge quirks. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'll I'll have to be mindful of that going forward and I'll I'll bring you back what I can what I can gather. Right. Research from the field. Yes. I haven't noticed anyone bringing their own little side table. Or, you know, contraption to attach to the table, but who knows? Chair. Chair. Extra chair. Yeah. Do, do people do that at your club, the chair? There's a plethora of chairs, so it is doable. And I have one of my lovely partners will have already arranged the South chair to have an extra chair when I play with her, Aww. which is very sweet and very much appreciated. Absolutely. Well, maybe that's their quirk. Making partner happy. (laughs) Yes, so eccentric. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for Club Quell. Club in the spotlight. Hello, this is Mike here from Northport, Michigan. I'm a member of the Leelanor Duplicate Bridge Club, which is located in Sutton's Bay, the biggest village in the county of Leelanor. Uh, our premises are the basement of the Lutheran Church in Sutton's Bay. It's a small club, but a very enthusiastic one. What are the best things about our club? Well, the best thing about our club is congeniality. We are, I suppose, being small, we all know each other. And we all get along very, very well. It may be very competitive when we're playing bridge, but we're all really very, very friendly. Because this is something of a tourist area, we do get people come to the club who are up here visiting during the summers, and they're always made very, very welcome, and new members are are especially welcome. And third, I suppose that it is such a beautiful location 
people come here for a lot of reasons other than bridge. They come here for fishing and the wine and just the scenery. So if you're, if you're up here, it's a, it's a good place to visit as well as a very congenial bridge club. So come on down. Email us if you'd like to quell about your club. I'm quelling. Two letters for you today, Jocelyn. Oh, how wonderful. Our first letter is from Mark, and the subject is, have you ever played three-handed bridge? I grew up learning bridge from my parents when I was in my mid-20s. They play the craziest old-school systems where opening two spades is strong, 18+, plus, and all kinds of old-fashioned methods. And now when I go back and play with them and try to bid more of the normal system, they think I'm crazy. How can one no trump two diamonds mean hearts? <laughs> anyway, when I learned to play, it was mostly just me and my mum and dad. So we played three-handed. And the way it worked was I would look at two hands and bid for both players. But the key was I needed to forget what the other hand was before bidding or playing the other hand, which sounds crazy, but it actually worked. Once you train your brain to forget what you've seen, it becomes easy to not have that influence your decision as the other player. And I think it helped my bridge because it's just about compartmentalizing the information you have. Have either of you ever played bridge three-handed or is my family the only crazy one? Thanks for what you do. Mark from San Diego. Desperation <laughs> calls for desperate measures. Right. And yes, I have played three-handed bridge. It's never been particularly difficult for me to have to forget what <laughs> the other hand had because I do that naturally. <laughs> but yes, I appreciate the effort that Mark must have been putting in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a nice way to, you know, if you are short numbers, it, it, it can be a good way to to still have a game, which is great. Very occasionally, my bridge group, the group, the students I have, you know, we just be three of us and I would play <laughs> two hands and like you I was blessed with the ability to forget <laughs> what was in the other hand to compartmentalize yes <laughs> thank, you, thank you Mark <laughs> our next letter is from Andrew in Melbourne Australia and this is called playing in an alternate universe it seemed like a normal day I was playing at a tournament, not unusual for a bridge professional, when this happened. Last round of the final, Swiss pairs imps. In a long-winded and somewhat artificial auction, we found a fit in both minors and bid to six diamonds. The opening lead was made, my hand went down as dummy, and I perused my partner's features for signs of disgust or trepidation that might suggest we had misbid. No such signs were apparent, so I began to relax. That only lasted a second. After winning the opening lead in hand, my partner crossed to dummy with a club. Our trumps must be solid, I thought. What was partner doing? At best, an unnecessary risk. At worst, suicidal. Then partner called for a second club, and it was all too clear. Even though I'd put my diamonds on the right in dummy, partner thought clubs were trumps. I reconciled my fate, metaphorically put my estate in order and awaited the whoosh of the falling blade. But everyone followed. There was still a chance. Partner might wake up. 
the coup de grace. A third club saw each opponent show out, but no diamond was played. What was going on? One partner, two opponents, six kibitzes, and I was the only agitated person at the table. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. I was in error, but I held the bidding sheet in my view, the record in the participant's own handwriting. I lasted two more tricks but couldn't take it anymore and announced I was going to the bar. (laughs) as i rose i said i don't know if i'm allowed to say this but that contract is six diamonds having left the table i never went back when my partner eventually joined me i asked how it went made was all he said my story finishes here because i didn't inquire about which contract or what score he entered nor whether the director had been involved I later learned that we'd won, but I don't know by what margin or who came in second place. I was busy trying to return to my own cosy universe where I believed I understood how things worked. Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Is it possible that partner had all the diamonds between dummy and his hand such that he wasn't worried about drawing trumps? And he figured he would go after the the clubs just to see, I don't know, what happened. Well, I think in this alternate universe, maybe anything's possible. (laughs) That is, that's hilarious. I love it. Yeah. So if you have any bridge quirks that you know of uh, that you'd like to share, or if you've got any fun stories about three-handed bridge or other ways of making do when you don't have a foursome, or perhaps about playing in an alternate universe where partner doesn't draw trumps and yet somehow comes out okay. (laughs) God only knows how, and we'll never know, apparently. Please send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. You can find our contact information on our website, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Anand Teva. Pakistani-American champion Anand Teva learned to play bridge as a teenager at school in Pakistan. Her first big win came in the 2016 Fall Mixed Swiss, partnering with Pakistani superstar Zia Mahmood. In 2017, she won both the teams and board match events at the YouthBridge Open Championships. More recently, she represented the USA on the women's team at the 2023 World Championships, and she won the 2023 Women's European Transnational Teams. We began by asking if she'd had any interesting hands lately. So recently, I was asked to sub in for someone who does lessons live for beginner bridge students. They set it up because they wanted to teach someone how to take a finesse, basically. And the way they had the hand set up, you come to an end position of king in one opposite ace, jack, fourth, and ace in one opposite queen, jack, fourth. And we're talking about baby bridge players. So we're just trying to get them to take a finesse with the queen, jack. But the way that the hand was set up with the trump suit, you could actually draw the trump. And instead of just trying to take the finesse in the ace and one opposite queen jack fourth, you could play 
your king in one opposite ace jack fourth first to see if the queen of that suit would come down and allow you to pitch your ace in one. And so it reminded me of why this game is so cool, because at every level, you're going to face a different problem. You could use that very same hand to combine your chances instead of just taking a finesse. So I'm not sure that it's so cool or anything. It just reminded me about why I really like this game and why it's so enjoyable. So it's something about that layering and the multiple possibilities that is what appealed to you right off the bat. I'm actually not sure what appealed to me about this game right off the back. I'm not a games player. I don't really play any other card games except this one. And this one, once I started, I didn't stop. I think originally I just liked it a lot because I was better than my brothers when we started. (laughs) And uh, they quit and I didn't. You liked beating them. Well, when you grow up with two older brothers who make you do everything they want, and that includes video games, tag, flag football, and you're just the worst at it, it's nice to finally be better at something. Did you learn with your brothers? Uh, We did learn mini bridge together, and they stuck with it for like six months or so, and then they were like, nope, we're done. And I was like, "Hmm, I'll keep trying. So what did that look like when you kept trying? Well, I got plucked out of the beginning group and put into this crash course to get ready for the 2008 mind games. So basically, I had barely played any kind of real bridge, and I sort of knew how to bid and sort of knew how to take a finesse, but that's all I knew. And we went to China for three weeks to play, and I was just bad. But it was fun, and I liked meeting all of these young people who were also playing this game. They were all at a different level of understanding, but everyone had fun just the same. So after that, every year I went to this junior thing, and it was great. So can you back up and join the dots for us a little bit? I did read that you learned to play at school. So the mini bridge, was that at school? That was at school. Like Basically, our school principal liked bridge. So we (laughs) were told to play it and we all were forced like three or four classes and then everyone kept tapering off at some point. And at the end of the day, there were like maybe six of us left standing after all of that was said and done. And we all went to China because of this. So what period of time was it from learning to play mini bridge at school to playing in China? Well, I learned at age 16, and I went to China at age 16. (laughs) So a really short window. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about I went to China to play this game, and it was a miracle we won any matches. I'm sure I passed key card, king ass, and all kinds of forcing bids. (laughs) And, you know, there we were. Splinters. I'm not sure I ever passed a splinter. Basically, I was definitely on the level where I could only pass something that was going to give me a game bonus. So five no trump was safe in that way. (laughs) Did your principal come over with the team? Uh, No, we sort of got handed off to non-school affiliates from different cities. And we got put in this crash course. We went from strangers to friends in like the course of a couple of weeks. And in China, we didn't really know anyone else and... What's a good way to say this? Like, we weren't really friends. We didn't really know each other. I had no idea who these people were a couple of weeks before going. And we just went because we had a spot available and it was there for the taking. 
my parents almost didn't even let me go because they were like, what is this? We brought you over to our home country to instill some culture in you. And here you are playing cards and talking to strangers. Like it was it was weird. Have your parents now come to terms with the fact that you're a champion bridge player? No, they still haven't forgiven me for not going to med school. <laughs> I mean, my dad has six children. None of them became doctors and were his greatest disappointments. <laughs> I mean, he says that mostly as a joke now because that's the one thing he wanted out of one of his kids. If one of us did it, he would have been the happiest guy ever. And now, like, I have two brothers. They're into business just like him. I have my older sister who got her master's in, like, health administration Anyway, I was close. I even studied microbiology, psychology, and chemistry in college. I did all the things I was supposed to do, and then I decided to play cards for a living. So I was the closest and the biggest tease, I guess. (laughs) Obviously, you find the game really stimulating, but do you also find the environment stimulating? You know, you've, you've got this background having studied like you said, psychology and biology. When you're in the bridge world, does it feed that part of your soul? That part of my soul? Well, the game itself is really awesome. It evolves so much and so frequently because the people who play the game change. So that definitely feeds some part of me. In school, the only thing I really, really learned is that I like to learn. So I do that in bridge every day. But the environment of Brit, what does it do for me? I mean, it's like anything else. Some days I really like it. Some days I'm like, what is going on? It's brought me my closest friends and I've had wonderful experiences because of it. I mean, this is just such a hard question. What hasn't Bridge done for me? I wouldn't know where to start. So most of your friends are in that community? Yeah, a lot of my closest friends are in the Bridge community, all in different parts of the world. And I would not have met them without Bridge. And honestly, I couldn't imagine my life without these people in it. So in that way, Bridge has done more than I can ever say. When you were in college and you were navigating a pretty heavy course load, from what it sounds like, were you still playing Bridge? Well, I had a deal with my parents. As long as I was still in school, they wouldn't bother me about traditional things like marriage and babies. So... I kept adding course load and they kept leaving me alone. But the first three years of my schooling in university was like intense. I took 20 credit hours a semester, all these things. And then the last three years of my schooling was like one class a semester while I played bridge all the time. I see. But that's just between you and I. Like (laughs) my parents do not need to know that. No, they don't. They won't ever find out. So you really didn't have time if you were taking 20 credits in a semester to also play bridge, or did you still manage to find the time? Yeah, I played on on Bridge Base Online like 10 million hours a day. Basically, when I got into university, I was really young, so I was too young to go do fun things. And Like, I was 16, so I didn't do anything. I had no social life. So you played bridge? I played bridge, and I went to school. That's what I did. Did you come across any other college friends who also played bridge? I have two very good college friends who I speak to to this day. They don't play bridge. They don't want to play bridge. And they have no idea what kind of cult I've joined. (laughs) I mean, I've tried to teach them. They're like, just stop. Let's go. Let's go have a drink and talk about other things. I'm like, okay. I mean, yeah, they're they're, um, into other things. Let's just put it that way. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever taught a friend? Maybe not one of those friends, but have you ever taught a friend to play bridge and it, and it took? I have taught people how to play from zero to some level of competency. They still do play to this day, but I don't think they're really into the competitive nature of the games. They just like hanging out and like kitchen bridge, so to speak. They like trick-taking card games. They like the idea of it, but they're not what you would call tournament players or duplicate players. When you were playing 100 million hours on BBO, were you also reading about bridge? There was a time where I could claim to have read zero bridge books. And that was, I guess, up until 2014. Because I went to a junior trials in Atlanta, and I had confessed my sins to Debbie Rosenberg about never having read a bridge book. And she didn't let me leave that tournament without the books. So I've read a handful of them. And what were the books she bestowed upon me the likes of Eddie Cantor and one book that I really enjoyed. It's called Right Through the Pack. And it's a fun book where every single card in the deck has some meaning towards one hand. So like even the two of hearts, it's important. You know, it's just like conceptually, it's a cool book. Can you say a little more about what it was about that book that you connected with? So it just like when you play bridge, you're you're told over and over again that every card matters, but it's really hard to conceptualize that because you're paying attention to the big ones. You're not really looking at the sixes and the fives and the two. And this book is designed in such a way that these small cards, the twos, the threes, they change the nature of the whole hand. And like without it, you wouldn't succeed in the contract you were trying to make. So it's nice to see that. 
things like preserving the two so you can enter the three and dummy or something like that? Or This is more like this card is going to win a trick. So mm. it's very glaringly obvious. But yeah, that's more practical. Entry preservation and things like that. Yeah. Since you read the Debbie Rosenberg hack of Essential Bridge Book, have there been any others that have really stood out for you or that you've gone back to again and again? I wouldn't say I've gone back to any book again and again. I'm really bad at reading bridge books. <laughs> but that's so interesting to me because some players, you know, they, they find the game and then they read everything. And then other players, it seems to be a much more experiential experience. They just play a lot. They play with mentors and they they learn from doing and watching. And it sounds like maybe that's more your category. Yeah, I guess I'm more of a hands-on type of player. I wouldn't know a a bookhand from a normal hand at all. Well, as you said earlier, you know, hands that appear to be teaching one kind of rudimentary lesson, you can look at them in so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. Like you could have the same hand from a defensive point of view, an offensive point of view, and you could have my favorite position of all time being the dummy. <laughs> it's all a different experience. Like sometimes when I'm dummy, I like to sort of pay attention to what's happening and see if I can guess what my partner's going to do next. And sometimes it's horrifying if I can guess it because that could mean something bad is happening. It could also mean something good is happening. Depends on who I'm playing with. <laughs> Why would it mean that something bad is happening? That anybody could then tell what your partner's up to or? Well, sometimes they make obvious plays. Sometimes... Like, I play with a lot of newer students, so you can tell the mistake they're going to make before they make it. Sometimes you're just hoping they rise to the occasion, you know? And it doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> sometimes. And those moments are amazing. But, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. Have you had any really important mentors at Bridge? I've been very fortunate. I know a lot of really good players. I get to talk to them about Bridge about hands, about bidding concepts and problems. And I'm fortunate enough to, to have, what's a good way to put it? I'm fortunate enough to... They're on speed dial? <laughs> well, I mean, I know all of these great players and I, I can hear them talk about the game. I can hear what they're thinking. And that is something that is like priceless. You're not going to find this in a book. You're not going to find how they think about problems written in a engaging way that makes sense. Bridge books are very academic. And when you sit at the table, one thing that bridge books can never do is tell you how someone's trying to trick you or how fast they do something or how slow they do something. What could your opponents possibly be thinking about? Like this kind of experience is, you can't really get it unless you're talking to someone about it. And I'm fortunate in that a lot of my friends who are world-class players and experts, like they talk about these things and I get to sit there and listen to them. It's nice. Thinking about one of your favorite partners, what might they say is your particular strength at Bridge? My strength at Bridge? I think you should ask my partners. <laughs> well, they're not here. So if you could. OK, well, then how about what might they say is an area that you might need a little work on if there is such a thing? Everyone needs a little work on something. And for me in particular, I'm not very good at being positive at the table. Like if something good happens, I don't say anything. 
because I want good things to happen. And when they happen, that's great. But bridge to me is a game about improvement. So I end up only commenting on stuff where we could be better. And that is very difficult, I think, because some people, like a lot of people, they need positive reinforcements at the table. And here I am not saying anything when something great happened and being like, okay, so on this hand where we pushed, couldn't we have done this and won like 10 in? You know, that's more Mars feed and that's not always so good. Do you think a part of this is related to your upbringing and maybe the expectations that you place on yourself having grown up with a lot of siblings and clearly some expectations? I think it's more a product of this is my job, right? And to me, if I have a good result that is unmatched, that's me just showing up to my job. So when we have some kind of accident, this is what I want to work on all the time. I'm not sure it has anything to do with how I grew up and more so just that when something good happens to me, this is what I want to be par. That's why I don't focus on it. I'm always just trying to like be better as a bridge player. In order to be better, you have to focus on your shortcomings or what results could be improved. And I mean, sometimes there's nothing to improve and that's great, but this is not a game where that happens frequently, if ever. Even the very best players can find a hand where something could be better. Can you identify any particular area where these things that you want to work on keep coming up? Is there a particular aspect of the game that you find yourself focusing your efforts on improvement in a particular direction? I don't think there's any one particular aspect that I focus on. I see what happens in any given session. And, you know, sometimes it's my declare a play. Sometimes it's a subpar bidding decision. Sometimes it's a defensive error, like what I should have been thinking on lead versus, you know, I thought about all of the correct things and did something that was not so great anyway. So it's more like a session by session thing, individual hand. There's no overall arc. At this point, I'm not sure that there could be because, I mean, I've played over 10 years. And so now we're working on little, little things just like this game. I had a hand in the World Championships recently where I was on lead and I made a very simplistic lead of like leading my singleton. But if I had thought about it a little bit longer and decided to lead my long suit tapping the declarer, it would have gone from going plus 200 to plus 800 just on on a lead. I mean, okay, so my lead was more like plus 500 instead of 800, but still, things like that. When you think about muck-ups at the table, what's the biggest schmuzzle you've ever made? You mean besides going down cold contracts every now and then? <laughs> Does anything stand out? Recently, my biggest issue has been not being practical enough at the table. Like, I wouldn't say that I have any developed partnerships. I have regular partners that I play with frequently, but no partnerships to the point of, like, we have very beautiful understandings and agreements and things like this. So sometimes when you're at the table, it pays a lot to make a practical bid and move on with your life. Not a bid that maybe describes your hand and if everything works out in the world, it's going to be great, but just, like, set a suit, 
live out your hand a little bit, bit key card and, and get somewhere. You know, that is something I've been coming across more and more frequently. When you don't have such developed partnerships, you can't really go after the beauty of any auction. Sometimes it's just cut and dry, brute force, get to where you need to be. What's the most unexpected or wackiest place that you've played bridge? I did go to Iceland for the bridge tournament and happened to play during a blizzard. That was not so fun. I mean, the bridge was fun. Iceland was fun. But being in a blizzard, I grew up in Vegas. It was a little scary. (laughs) Did the power go out or anything dramatic like that? Nothing dramatic happened other than there was a lot of snow on the ground and snow in my face. (laughs) And walking was hard. There was no visibility. So the actual bridge playing was quite easy. Uh, We were inside, nice and warm. Getting back to the car to go back to the hotel, not so easy. Did you get back in good time or did you have to sit in the car for a while? I mean, the car didn't stop. That was nice. It took like 30 minutes to get back to the hotel. Nothing bad happened. We didn't get stalled on the road or anything like that. It was just a, it was just a blizzard, like every <laughs> Tuesday in Iceland, I guess. <laughs> and to get back to the venue the next day, was that also a bit of, a, of an adventure? No. No. We walked. Oh. (laughs) Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? There are a lot of festivals that are very fun to go to. Uh, Last year, I was fortunate enough to go to Madeira in November. So it was the best weather on a beautiful island. And that was amazing. I did a whole bunch of things not related to bridge that I hope to go back and repeat this year when I go again. Um, Iceland is fun. It's four days of intensive bridge, like it's 100 boards of pairs and 80 boards of teams in four days. So it's a lot of bridge in a short amount of time in cold weather outside. But that tournament's really fun. It's really well run. Everything's electronic and quick paced, so it's nice. I recently went to the Europeans, which was also really fun, just location-wise and they picked a really nice city. Um, so what are my favorites? My favorite tournaments are any place that involves an island. Super nice, usually. Uh, Biritz, south of France, really fun in the summer. Can't really think of anything beyond that. What was it like the first time you were hired to play bridge? It was weird. <laughs> um, I had met Steve Zolotow at a dinner party in Las Vegas, courtesy of Ron Smith. And he needed a partner for the mixed fairs. So it was Dallas 2014. And um, I mean, at that point, I really didn't understand you could be hired for this game and make a living out of it or anything like that. And I was so young. I was like really surprised anyone would want to pay me to do this. But 10 years later, I'm still playing with him. So I've done something okay. That's awesome. It was, uh, it's like a surreal experience every time you get hired to play this game. Surreal how? I mean, for one, it, it feels like an accomplishment. It means you're, you're established to the point where you can contribute to this game, which not everyone can say. So it means I'm not just wasting my time doing nothing. But now that I know more about the professional bridge world, it's really, Uh, in honor every time you get hired because people can choose to play with whoever they want when you get hired to do something that's amazing you're someone's first choice to do something like this do you ever feel any pressure to perform a particular way as a professional player 
are you inhibited in some respects because you are hired and you're trying to create a particular kind of environment for your client? It depends on who I'm playing with, what the event is, what the function of the event is. I definitely feel pressure, but not because I'm hired, just because I want to do well. Like, I'm a competitor and I want to feel like I'm competing. So we feel that kind of pressure. But to say that I feel pressure because I'm hired would be misleading, I think. Because any pressure I feel with or without that metric, I think anyone who's competitive with this game has this feeling. Like you're playing an event and you really just want to do well. Every board is a board. It matters. Every result could change the outcome. Like any bridge competitor feels that. You wouldn't really be a competitor without that feeling. And it's um, it's why they say it's a mental game. Like you have to be able to be at the table, be present at the table without thinking about that pressure, like the end result. You have to be able to focus on the hand at the table, like the one that's right in front of you. And when people can do that, more often than not, the results come. Is there anything that makes you nervous when you're playing bridge? In this way, I think I've been blessed. I don't get nervous. I've always thought that no matter who I'm playing against or what event I'm playing, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and hopefully it's right. I don't think I've experienced that kind of nerve, but I've never experienced that in school or in, in life. I don't like to let my environment change what I do. I like to be steadfast and you know, sometimes that leads to mistakes, obviously, but they're my own to own. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you? at the table? Well, like the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me at the bridge table was I was sitting in Las Vegas at one of the nationals the last few years. I was playing with Steve actually and someone came up behind me and like rubbed my head like I was a lucky Buddha. It happened to be Jimmy Kane and I have no idea why he did this to this day. I can appreciate at the table and at the time it must have been quite odd but and I don't know if this is a cultural thing because I'm Australian, but it wouldn't be unusual here for someone to come by someone and sort of rub their head as an, uh, it's an affectionate gesture. I mean, it didn't feel affectionate. It felt like uh, uh, this is a weird thing that's happening. <laughs> okay, so if I knew Jimmy Kane or whatever, this would make sense. But I think what had happened was he knew my partner quite well. And so it was like a joke between them. And... I'm not really in on the joke. I laughed about it at the time and it was funny. It was just, it was unexpected. Sure, sure. Though I still suspect it was an affectionate gesture. Oh, I think um, it must have been because the way they were crackling on about it, they were having the time of their life. So I was wondering if he might have mistaken you for somebody else. If he wasn't a good friend of yours and he's doing that, it, that's what came to my mind. That he actually thought you were a friend. No, okay. The way that it was, was I was facing away from him. Could see my partner. And they go way back. Or they went way back anyway. So it was just like a joke between them, I think. It was was funny. I don't don't know. There was nothing more to say about it. Like, even I was laughing at the time. But that's how I met Jimmy Kane. So there you go. There you go. Do you ever play social games with any other bridge professionals? I play games all the time. But just social games? Like I have a vision of you sitting in someone's kitchen (laughs) or holding (laughs) the cards, just mucking around. Does that ever happen? 
that does happen. That's a scarily accurate depiction of what happens to me after the game sometimes. Like after a long day at a tournament, we'll go hang out in a private place and play like Polish poker or just random card games, anything to de-stress from the day. And sometimes we're around a counter just tossing cards, doing nothing in particular. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that game, but it's really fun. It's a bluffing game. And one of my uh, close friends taught me how to play it. She claims I don't play it well. I have beaten her once, all of one time, the million times we've played it. Is she a bridge player? Uh, you guys interviewed her, actually. Oh. Uh, Irene Baroni? Sure. You so, know. yeah. Love if her. you ask her, I can't really bluff to save my life. <laughs> so She is something else when it comes to poker also. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite bridge convention or gadget that you really like to play with your partners? I mean, I like to play transfers in competition pretty frequently. Um, basically, anywhere you can stick a transfer, I like to play it. I think it's really good, especially for siding contracts, saving space. If there's one thing that I would say people should play, it's that. And how about a convention that you maybe really detest? I don't like Gerber. I don't like wide-ranging splinters. I like everything to have a range. So it helps with building hands. That, I think, is one of the hardest things you can do in an auction, build hands for your partner and see if that hand is good for game or slam. And the more wide-ranging your bids are, the harder it is to do this. So I like playing things that help you picture partner's hand. What is the best tip or advice that you've ever been given? Take your time and know what's in your hand. I play fast, too fast. And slowing down, allowing yourself the time to think things through can only help you. Anam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much, Anam. We've loved it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Anam Teva. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters, who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Olivia Cooper. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. Join the Sorry Partner Posse, purchase books through our site, explore the merch store, these links and links to Club Fell are in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Anand says, take your time. Allow yourself to think things through. <laughs> I need to remember that, partner. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>